Turn in your Bible to, to 1 Samuel chapter 29. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 29. That's where we're going to be spending our, our time here this morning. My name's Cody. I'm one of the pastors here at Reliance. It's good to be, uh, be able to be here with you. And um, we're going to be looking in this, this book of, of 1 Samuel, uh, checking out something in the life of David where he is he's caught between two worlds. We're going to be looking at a piece of David's life that we typically don't look at. When you think about uh, King David, you think about this man who he is, you think about the life that he lived and, and all the things that are highlighted. This is typically a passage of scripture that we don't really look at. We don't really necessarily spend a lot of time uh, in. And uh, today we're going to be spending our time together looking at it. And so First uh, Samuel is, is where we find this, chapter 29, and this is a book, First Samuel, is a book of transition from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. Uh, the judges are the people, not judges in terms of a, a guy who has a gavel and he sits up, uh, you know, presiding over a courtroom. Uh, judge is a word that means deliverer. And so we, we have this time of, of God raising up certain people who would deliver his people from the, the oppression of their enemy. Uh, and this is the time of the judges. Well, 1 Samuel transitions us from the time of the judges into the time of the kings, where now kings are the ones who are leading, not, not the judges. Samuel himself is known as the final judge of Israel. It says it early on in the book of 1 Samuel, you're reading, and it says that Samuel judged Israel. He's the final judge over Israel, and after him comes the kings. So Samuel had a unique office, uh, being both judge and prophet, calling people to both repentance as well as pursuit of God. And as he's doing this, the people say to Samuel that, that they want a king. They cry out for a king. They ask, they ask for, for, them, for him to be able to have not just a judge, but they want a king to rule over them. And, and ultimately, against Samuel's advice, the people petition God for a king, and he gives them Saul as their king. Now, in the book of, of 1 Samuel, there are three major players in this book that we have to highlight. And, and I'm telling you all of this, not by way of just telling you a lot of history and a lot of, a lot of information, but all of this is necessary for us to understand in terms of our backstory so that when we carry it into chapter 29, we have a good frame of reference for what's taking place and what's going on so that we can rightly understand what's happening. So there are three major players happening here in the book of 1 Samuel. One is Samuel himself. The, the prophet of God, we've already talked about him, and the final judge of Israel. Number two is Saul, the first king of Israel. Saul is known as the man who started well and finished poorly. This is who Saul is, the first king. The, num- the third person, the third major player in the book of 1 Samuel is David, the shepherd boy anointed as the second king and God's choice for this office as king. There are a lot of other people who play significant roles within the book of 1 Samuel, but these are the major players. These are the ones who we have to set in place in order to know what's going on. And the basic storyline of 1 Samuel, what we see happening, what basically takes place here uh, is, is that Saul has failed in obedience and repentance, resulting in three things. This is vital for us to understand. We have to know this, because if we don't get this, we can't move forward in understanding the rest of what takes place. Saul has been given the kingdom. He's been given uh, the rule over the nation of Israel, and he has failed in obedience and repentance. This is where Saul has failed. And in this failure, this results in three things taking place in his life. Number one, God removes 
his spirit. Because Saul fails in obedience, because he will not obey God, he will not obey the direction that God gives to him, and he will not repent of his sin, he'll make excuses instead, God removes his spirit from Saul. He, he, the, the, the spirit of, of God is, is with this, this king, Saul. He's, he's helping Saul to make decisions, to move the right direction, to know where to go, to know how to handle things. And as he is moving upon Saul, God now removes his spirit. There is no longer this direction from God. There is no longer this presence of God abiding with him and carrying him through and helping him to know what to do and how to do it properly. The, the, the second result of Saul's failure in obedience and repentance is that God removes his kingdom. God removes his kingdom. Not only does God remove his spirit, but God also removes his kingdom. This is God's kingdom to give to whomever he chooses. This was never Saul's kingdom. This was never something that he aspired to, never something that he wanted. This was something that God had given to Saul. And as a result of God giving this to him, it was up to him to be faithful with what God entrusted into his care. And so Saul, in his failure to be obedient to God, in his failure to repent of his sin, what ends up taking place is, is that God says, the kingdom is no longer you, yours. I'm removing it from you. I'm giving it to your neighbor who is better than you. Who's better than you. Number three, because of Saul's failure in obedience and repentance, God removes his guidance from Saul. Not only his spirit, not only his kingdom, but also his guidance. God, the, the people of God, especially the rulers, would need to, to ask God questions from time to time. Should we go up? Should we, uh, should we stay? Should we attack? Uh, or or should, we, um, should we retreat? What should we do? How should we handle this situation? What should be done? And they would ask God, and God would speak. He would speak through prophets. He would speak through dreams. He would speak through this thing called the Urim and the Thummim, which is... Uh, Directly translated, the lights and the darkness. And uh, basically it was, a, I don't know what it was, maybe it was a magic eight ball that they shook up and said, should we go? And said, no. Um, like, it's kind of like that, but not really, because it's more like God doing it, not a funny little toy that you can buy at Target. Um, so, so this is the way that God would speak. And God's not doing this anymore. He's stopped. He, he's, no matter what Saul does, there's a certain point in the book of 1 Samuel where you see Saul going to God and saying, please speak to me, give me direction. And God will not speak to him. He won't. Because he's failed at obedience. I've already told you what to do, Saul. And when you fail to do what I've commanded you to do, all you come back to me with is excuses. You won't own your sin. You won't repent. And as a result, I'm not talking anymore. And so Saul's failure in obedience and repentance results in God's removal, removal of his spirit, God's removal of his kingdom, and God's removal of his guidance. And when I read this and when I see this, my tendency is to look at it and to say, man, uh, I would not do what Saul did. I mean, this guy's a joke, right? I mean, if I was in Saul's shoes, if I was in his position, I would totally do the right thing. What about you? You're not really too confident in my ability to do the right thing, right? Um, I mean, we know ourselves, and even though we want to try to kid ourselves into thinking that we would do what's right, into thinking we would do what's appropriate, we know that we are a depraved people prone to wander, prone to our own sin, prone to our own way, prone to leave God, pursuit of our own, our, ourselves, and, and, and to abandon Him that we might take up our own lives and do what we think is right. My tendency is not to obey. 
Instead of looking at the scriptures and seeing Saul as the bad guy, I need to look at the scriptures, see Saul and what he did and say, I'm the same way. I'm, I can do the same thing. And when God gives me something to do and he gives me a command, my tendency is not to obey. I want to go my own way. I, I see what you're saying, God. I see what you're telling me to do. But, but God, you know what? You don't really understand what's going on. I need to go my own direction. I need to decide what I should do, not submit to what you've told me to do. My tendency, number two, is not only to not obey, it's to not repent. When I'm confronted with my sin, when my sin comes before me, I have all the excuses in the world why it's okay for me to do this right now. If you just understood my circumstance, if you just knew what was happening, if you just had this other information, then my sin, it would be okay. It would be all right. It wouldn't be a sin. You could actually just look over it. No, it's a sin. It's wrong. My tendency is to not repent, it's to make excuses. And so, this is what we see happening in the life of Saul. While while Saul failed in these things, David, while not perfect, succeeded where where Saul failed. David succeeded where Saul failed. He succeeded, David succeeded in admitting his guilt. When he was confronted with his sin, he would say, "I've, I've sinned. Not in false humility and false repentance, the way we see Saul doing it, but David would would own his sin and say, I've done wrong. I've done what I should not have done. The second thing he does is he humbly seeks God's direction. David humbly seeks God's direction. Lord, you lead, you guide, you take control. I will follow you wherever you ask me to go. And the third thing we see David do is he obeys God's voice. He sought to do what he was told. He may not have done it perfectly all the time. He may not have been able to be the one who, who, who was uh, doing exactly what he should have do, done at all times, but he sought to obey God's voice. And when he was wrong, he chose to change. He chose to alter himself in order to line up with what God was saying. Not that he was looking to change what God said or what God's word establishes, that we don't come to the scriptures pridefully and arrogantly saying, this doesn't agree with what my life does, therefore the Bible's wrong. He comes to it saying, my life doesn't agree with what God has said, therefore I'm wrong. I need to change. He humbly comes this way. And this, this this willingness to be obedient, this desire to be obedient, this willingness and desire to repent is what makes David a man after God's own heart. Not being perfect, not being without sin, not taking his own uh, his own way in trying to hold that up as good and right. That, that's not what made David a man after God's own heart. It was his, his willingness to be obedient, his willingness to repent. So God takes the kingdom from Saul and he gives it to David. David's being chosen by God and his gracious hand upon David is a continual reminder to Saul of what he's lost. This is what's going on here. Saul's failed. David has succeeded. God takes the kingdom from Saul, gives it to to David. And and now, as we see that David is succeeding, all that Saul can see in David's success is his own failure. All that he's wrapped up in and all that he can see is, I failed where he succeeded. God's hand is upon him. It's no longer upon me. And so Saul, instead of showing humility and repentance, he tries to hunt David down. He tries to kill him. And this is what brings us to chapter 29. This is what brings us up to speed in 1 Samuel chapter 29. uh, Today we're going to look at 
Uh, all of chapter 29, it's only 11 verses uh, short, and uh, we're going to break it down into three pieces uh, and, and look at it in verses 1 and 2, and then check out verses 3 through 5, and then 6 through 11 this morning in breaking down uh, 1 Samuel chapter uh, 29. So here we go, 1 Samuel chapter 29, verses 1 through 2. This is David's strange alliance. David's strange alliance. 1 Samuel 29, verse 1. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. This is David's strange alliance. The Philistines here are preparing to attack Israel. This is what's taking place. They're mounting their forces. They're gathering their military. This is a major conflict that's about to take place. This is, notice it says in verse 1 that they gather together all of their armies. This is a national war. This isn't just a, a few guys going in to, to make an attack. This is my entire nation against your entire nation. And the Philistines, the mortal enemies of the Isra- Israelite people, are looking to make way into Israeli territory to take their land and to kill their people. The Philistines had been an adversary of God's people starting all the way back in Genesis chapter 21 with Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Israeli people. And God calls to Abraham and he says, Abraham, leave your country, leave your people to a land which I will show you. And as Abraham followed God in faith, he's known as the father of faith. He does so coming to the land of Canaan, which is modern day Israel. And as he does so, he sets up his, his life and he starts to live. And one of the most important parts of this is that he's going to need water. And so Abraham digs some wells. He goes through the country. He digs some wells. Well, there's a certain people uh, that come along and they steal Abraham's wells. They steal some of them. They fill some of them up with dirt. And uh, when Abraham goes back to take his wells and to to check on them, he sees that someone else has, has control of them. And he has obviously a problem with this. I've done the work. I've done the effort. It's my well and you're taking it from me. Well, what we see happening is that the people who take the wells, the people who are this adversary to Abraham, become the Philistines. Abraham becomes the Israelites. And so we see that as time marches on, as time goes by, that this adversary that started, started off as an, as an adversarial relationship between Abraham and some of the, the people that live there turns into an all-out conflict and mortal enemies. The, these people become the enemies of, uh, of the Israelites. And so now under Saul's reign, the Philistines have freely had uh, control over the entire western portion of their country. The, the Philistines had control of the south down as far as where modern day Gaza would be. That's kind of where they started. And they took the entire western border all the way up uh, the seaboard to go to the very north in where what today would be modern Lebanon, modern day Lebanon. And that's where everyone's, everyone's at right now is in Lebanon. And the, the, the Philistine forces are prepared to mount their attack to, to pursue all in out, all, in all, all out war against the Israelites from there. And that's what we see taking place here. This has all happened under Saul's reign, his inability to hold back the enemies and to keep them from his territory and to expand into the territory that God had told him to do. 
the Israel and Philistine armies are now camped near one another and they're ready for war. Now, as the Philistines prepare for war, we see something extremely interesting in chapter 29, verse 2. Notice what it says there. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Um, Achish is one of the five kings of the Philistine people. Achish is one of the kings, the five kings of the Philistine people. Essentially, they had a government structure whereby these five guys had their own territories and they would govern their territories, but nationally they would rule together. So they had some sort of system where they would vote or whatever. Good thing there was five so that they wouldn't get stuck in a tie. You know, and then now what are we going to do? Flip a coin or, or what? Um, they, you know, they had an odd number of guys so that they would always have a majority and they end up making decisions that way. Uh, and so we'll see them actually make a decision similarly to that as we continue on in this chapter. So here's one of these five kings of the Philistine people and David is with him. David is with him. In chapter 28, we actually see that Achish says to David, you are so good at what you do. You are so amazing at at, at being a man of war. I want you to be my guard, my royal guard. David had retreated into this Philistine territory. He had abandoned his people. And the result was not that he just went under the radar unnoticed, but that he had actually been drawn into into the Philistine people so deeply that he he was a part of their military and he rose through the ranks, not just to be in the military, but actually to have the kingly guard. His duty was to preserve the king's life. The king of his enemy. David had fallen very far. How in the world did he get here? How in the world did he fall so far? What we see happening is that just like we said before, Saul was pursuing David to kill him. This is what he was doing over and over again. And there are two two distinct times that we see in the book of 1 Samuel where David has the opportunity to kill Saul and to end it all. That Saul's pursuing him, and in his pursuit, uh, David happens to be in the right place at the right time to be able to just wipe Saul out. And he chooses not to. He chooses not to. In chapter 26 was the second time where David decided, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to kill Saul. And the result is that Saul comes out in repentance when David says, look, Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't do it. And it causes Saul to have this false humility and false repentance. And he comes back and he says, David, I've, I've sinned. I'm so sorry. Come back and live with me. But David doesn't do that. Saul goes back to, to, to Jerusalem. David stays in the wilderness. And after this second time, we see chapter 27, verse 1. Let's read that together. Go back with me. Two chapters in your Bible to 1 Samuel 27, 1. I want you to see what happens after David decides not to kill Saul. uh, and, And Saul deals graciously with him, it would seem. David has a elapse of faith and something very drastic happens to him. In chapter 27, verse 1, it says this. And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. You see, Saul is constantly hunting David. He's constantly pursuing David. And David despairs. 
He comes to this point where he says within his heart, I'm, Saul is going to kill me someday. It's going to happen. He's going to take me over. He's going to take me out. Now this is in direct opposition to what God has already told Saul. God, or God has already told David. God told David, you are the next king. He's been anointed as the king. He says, I am with you. I have a future for you. I have a, 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 an ideal for you. I have an office for you. I have a calling for you. I have an anointing for you. And now David is saying within his heart, there's nothing better for me than I should leave my homeland, and I should go and I should live with my enemies. It's a sad day. It's a dark day. And I would argue that this is one of the darkest days, if not the darkest time in David's entire life. Sure, as we read ahead, there are some in 2 Samuel, there's some really dark and difficult things that happen with David. But this, I would argue, is, is the most detrimental and darkest time of David's life. He's left his home and his people. He's been living in enemy territory for a year and four months. He's serving the Philistine king, and he's preparing to attack his own people. This is a problem. David's in a, in a mess. David's conclusion in, in chapter 27, verse 1, is more a commentary on his faith in God than it is on his circumstances. He doesn't believe that God will be with him. He doesn't believe that God will preserve his life. He, doesn't, he looks at his circumstances. He looks at the difficulty. He looks at the issues. He looks at the problems, and he says, God's abandoned me. And he takes life into his own hands. A faithless thought crept in, and David entertained it. He believed it, and it controlled him. Proverbs 25, 28 is the verse that I have written over chapter 29 in my Bible. I wrote this verse in, in my Bible over chapter 29 because I believe that it's that scripture that really sets the tone for me to understand and to know what's happening with David. How did David get here? How did this happen that he has, he has pursued himself? That he has abandoned what God has given to him and now he's holding on to something evil, to something faithless. Proverbs 25, 28 says this, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. It's those who, they don't control themselves. They're left to whatever whim passes through their mind. They don't, they don't bring those ideas under subjection and look to, to pass them through the, the filter of Scripture and say, God, what do you say? What is your standard? What is, what is your thought? What, is, what do you hold dear? What do you hold necessary and valuable? And what do you hold up as a standard of godliness? Instead, we, we, we cling to our own ideas. And whatever passes through our hearts, whatever desire happens to be there, whatever whim suits our desire at the time, we chase that. No self-control. Instead, self-fulfillment. It's like a city broken down without walls. A city broken down without walls lets everything that's good run out and everything that's bad comes in. This is where David has been. He's a city broken down. His walls are broken down. Everything that was good in David has fled from him and now all that is bad has been let in. And I need to ask you today, do you have rule over your own spirit or does it rule you? 
Do you have rule over your own spirit or does it rule you? Does whatever fancy or whim or fleeting desire that passes through your mind, do you pursue it? Do you chase it? Or do you look to bring those things in subjection to the Lord? Because not everything that you think is good is actually good. There's some things that should be left and not taken up. And so if you find yourself in a strange alliance like David did, that you are where you do not belong and what you once despised has become acceptable and normal, you got to know how you got there so you can know how to get out, right? When you find yourself in these places, and if you don't find yourself in that place today, trust me, you will. You'll find yourself in, a, in one of these kinds of places because sin holds on to our hearts so tightly and it won't let go. And when we find, our, our place in a, we find ourselves in a place of strange alliance, it's important for us to know how to get out. And so we have to understand and know that wrong information produces a wrong belief which produces a wrong action. If you want to know how to change your actions, you have to back up. We can't start with our actions. We have to go back. Uh, wrong actions are a result of a bad belief. And a bad belief, believing the wrong thing, perhaps you, you have somehow believed that God is against you, that he's not for you, that he's not loving and kind and gracious, that somehow he's just the, the big mean kid with a magnifying glass looking to burn you and you're the little ant. Perhaps you've believed that about God. And in believing that, you have to understand that the reason you believe that is because your information's wrong. You've taken in the wrong information. And that has produced a wrong belief, which then produces the wrong action. If you find yourself in this place where you have a strange alliance and things have gone awry and things are not right in your life, they're not the way that they should be, you have to ask yourself two questions. You have to ask yourself these two questions. One, what lie have I believed to be true? What lie have I believed to be true? Because a lie is information. It's information. I've taken in information. I've received some kind of information. And in taking this information in, it's producing an improper belief within me. And my actions are being shown in the fact that I have these ungodly alliances within my heart, within my life. What lie have you believed to be true? Number two, what truth must I embrace even against my feelings? What truth must I embrace even against my feelings? You have to be willing to accept the truth against everything that you feel, everything that pushes against you, everything that seems right, everything that everybody else is doing, everything that your friends and coworkers and neighbors suggest, that, that these feelings and these ideas and these advice is all coming against you, and yet it's not true. I have to be willing to submit myself to the truth. When I, when I think about this, I think about my lovely wife. She's so kind and, and so gracious to me. She's put up with me for a really long time. You can pray for her. Um, if you can imagine being married to me, um, it's not simple and easy. She's a very gracious woman. Um, but I think about this with us because we used to fight a lot. Um, I won't ask for a raise of hands, but if you're married, you probably know what I'm talking about. You're living with a sinner, right? I don't mean her. I mean me. You're living with a sinner, right? And, and contention and fights and strife are happening all the time. 
They're happening all the time. And, and what, what I had to do was, was within me, there was this fight that would ensue because she would, she would be telling me something and she'd be telling me what she thinks and she'd be telling me what she's doing and I would look at it and I would judge, you're not telling me the truth. You're not telling me what you really think. You're not telling me what you really feel. I'll tell you why you're doing this. I'll tell you why you're, try, you're telling me to take out the trash. Not because it stinks, but because you're trying to control me, woman. You're laughing because that's, that's, I'm an idiot, right? Yeah, dumb. Don't, don't think like that. But I wanted to assign to her her motivation. I wanted to tell her what she was thinking and then set up that straw man and knock it down and say, look, look at what you're doing. And so obviously when I do that, that makes her frustrated. And so she starts fighting back and we get in this cycle of crazy and we end up fighting one another over something that's so simple and so foolish for me to believe a lie because it suits my feelings. When I chose to stop believing lies and instead chose to trust that she was telling me the truth, it set me free and our marriage turned around in a major way. Almost, I'll say 90% of our, our fights ceased at that point. Because I stopped assigning to her her motivation. She was able to tell me what it was. And even if I felt like she's lying to me and she's wrong and I know it. Mm, I'm going to believe anyway. I'm going to give her the benefit of that. I'm going to believe in her. I'm going to let her tell me what she's thinking. I'm going to trust that as true. I'll believe it even against my feelings. When I, when I became obedient to what Scripture says, and when I, became, when I chose to align myself under 1 Corinthians 13, 7, which says that love believes all things, it revolutionized our relationship. I stopped treating her as a liar, and I let her tell me the truth. Now, if she's lying to me, that's between her and Jesus. That's not up to me to fix that. I can't fix that. I had to trust that she's a God-fearing woman. She is going to stand before the Lord. And if she is, in fact, lying to me, if she is, in fact, trying to control me or trying to do something against me, then God will convict her. He convicts me pretty well of the things that I do that are wrong. I'm going to trust that he'll do the same with her. And once I did that, it changed everything. It changed our entire relationship because I was willing to embrace the truth even against my feelings. Change what you think and what you believe will change and your actions will follow. The gospel is not to seek out behavior modification, right? The gospel is not behavior modification. When you believe in Jesus and you trust your heart to him, it's not that you have these bad habits and these bad things that you're doing, and now God says, you're bad, change what you're doing. Stop doing the bad, start doing the good. It's not behavior modification. It's not try harder, do better, pull yourself up, get it together, just do it. Nike's wrong. You can't just do it. The gospel is not behavior modification. The gospel is not for you to become a better version of yourself. That's not what the gospel is. That's not what Jesus teaches. Jesus does not teach that you should become a better version of yourself. Five steps to a better you and a, a, a better brand new life for you is, is a false gospel that is, that is as, as Paul would say in Galatians, it's damnable. That's what Islam teaches. That's what Buddhism teaches. A better you is not the gospel. Death to yourself is the gospel. 
That's the gospel. It's for me to trust in Jesus. It's the mortification of my flesh. It's that I die that he might live. My life is not my own. He bought me. He takes care of me. He pursues me. I die that he might live within me. Not that I'm, that I'm suicidal or crazy somehow, but that my life is not mine. He's purchased it, and I will give it to him. I will lay it down. I decrease that he might increase. It's not modification of your behavior. It's the mortification of your flesh. That's what the gospel is. And we need to trust in that. We need to hope in that. We need to believe in that. Listen to what Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21 say in the New Living Translation. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Behavior modification, me trying to do good and try harder, is to say that Jesus' death is meaningless. It is not the gospel. It's the opposite. Self-control is not something that you produce. Galatians 5.23 says it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the result of the Holy Spirit within you. You don't have this self-control. You don't have this ability to, to make yourself different. It's only when you yield your life to that of, of the Lord that the Holy Spirit enters in and changes who you are. That's your only hope. Not you. Not you. David is in a, a position uh, of honor here in, in 1 Samuel 29. Not just in the military, but the head of the security for one of these five kings King Achish. David thought he could just live on the outskirts of town. We see in chapter 27, his desire was just to leave the pursuit of Saul. That Saul was chasing him all the time, and he's just tired of it. Maybe if I just go down to the Philistine territory, I can kind of live in between two worlds, and, and everything can just be peaceful. But the enemy wouldn't leave him there. The enemy sucked him in. The enemy pulled him in. And now he finds himself in a place, a place of honor among his enemies. Not only does David have a strange alliance, but also David has a questionable allegiance. Let's read in 1 Samuel 29, verses 3 through 5. It says this, Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him and do not let him go down with us into the battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master if not with the heads of these men? Verse 5, is this not David of whom they sang to one another in dances saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Here we see that not only does David have a strange alliance, he's allied himself with the enemy, but he also has a questionable allegiance. The Philistines had, to, had a, this government structure, like we said before, where the five of them got together and they shared the rule, each having their own region to, to control. And now we see here that, that the, the princes of the Philistines, who are these, these kings, they pass by and they ask the simple question, what's the Hebrew doing here? 
why in the world is he, we're about to attack the Israel nation. And you have a Hebrew aligning in, in battle with you? Are you crazy? What do you think this is? You see, these pagan Philistines could see what David could not. He didn't belong with them. He didn't belong there. And so they asked the question, what's he doing here? But David couldn't even see it. David's heart was truly darkened and it blinded him to the reality of where he found himself. Because his heart was darkened and he was blinded, he, was, he, he had spent so much time in this enemy territory with the Philistine people that he actually thought he was one of them. He forgot who he was. He had lost his identity. He, he, had, he had abandoned the people who he should have been with and he pursued the people he should have been, he had, he should have been at war with. And now he thinks... And he's a Philistine. David's despair resulted in his loss of identity. His despair, his lack of faith in God, his lack of trusting in the Lord, is looking at his circumstances, looking at his difficulty, looking at the problem, caused him to lose even his identity. He didn't even know who he was anymore. It destroyed his decision-making ability and his obedience to God we find ourselves in a similar situation where Romans chapter 12 tells us that the world is constantly trying to press us into its mold. We're told don't be conformed into the the world. Don't be conformed into the image of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed because there's this conforming as a steady, perpetual, ongoing, purposeful pressure to get you to lose your identity in Christ and to think that you're like the world, to think that you're like the enemy. God does not want you to think that way. It is not okay for us as Christians to just blend in. We're not the same. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. God's not going to let it take place. We shouldn't stand out because of our own foolishness, but we should stand out because we're a different, we're a peculiar people. We're not like everybody else. When there's a wrong decision to be made, why does that guy always do what's honorable? Why? That's weird. He could take the easy way out, but he doesn't. Because I'm a Christian. Because I'm aligned with Christ. The enemy is constantly pressing in on you. Pressing an ungodly mold upon you. Seeking to impose his identity upon you. And to to distort who you actually are in Christ. So what do we do about it? What do we do about it? I'm going to have you turn to a verse in a minute. And you can keep your hand in 1 Samuel because we're going to come back here. But I'm going to have you turn to a verse in a minute. And before I tell you what the verse is, I I, want to preface it by saying this is a very familiar verse. It's a very familiar verse. And I don't want you to skip over it or skip past it just because of its familiarity. Just because you know, you, you may have read it before, you may, be, may even have this verse memorized, but I want to challenge you to actually turn in your Bible to it and let's read it together and I want to show you some things in it. Don't, don't be mistaken by thinking that I know this and I don't need to, to, to read it. Let God's word have its work in your heart. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. How do we combat this endless pressure from the enemy? While I could recite any number of places in Scripture whereby we we could be able to find this and 
and take, take you to a, a lot of different places. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 lays this out for us very clearly, very neatly, and very distinctly. And so I want to show you something that it says here. There's this constant steady pressure and stream of opposition from the enemy. And, and we're told here in Acts chapter 2 something very specific. Acts 2 is where Peter preaches the very first sermon in the church. He, he, he's overcome by the Holy Spirit. He preaches the very first sermon. And that day, 3,000 people get saved. They believe in the gospel of Jesus. They, they submit themselves to the will of God. They no longer take control of their own lives, but they give themselves over to the Lord. And this day, not only do we, do we see the birth of the church, but in chapter 2, verse 42, we also see the growth of the church. And just like the enemy is constantly pressing against you, there is something that we're told to do here in Acts 2:42, which I believe is is very uniquely designed for us to grow in our faith. It says Acts 2:42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Notice that it says there in the beginning they continued steadfastly Continued means that you're doing it. It's a perpetual thing. It's just ongoing. It's always happening. It's never off. It's always on. Continued. It's always going. Steadfastly means you cannot move me from this. Come hell or high water, no matter what's going on in my life, I will not be moved from this. I'm steadfast. I'm immovable. When, when the tide of the world is pressing against you, you need an anchor to drop to hold you sure, to hold you secure. This is your anchor. This is steadfast. This is what will hold on to you as you continue steadfastly in these things. That, that here we see three very specific things taking place. There are four that are laid out, but I want to draw your attention to three ideas within this, this verse. Acts 2.42, that when the enemy is pressing against us, what do we do? Number one, by taking God's word in. By taking God's word in. Notice what it says there. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That, that, that the apostles' doctrine means the word of God. The apostles are the ones who wrote the scriptures. The apostles were the ones who were with Jesus. The apostles were the ones who taught the word of God. They continued steadfastly in the things that the apostles taught. They, they gave themselves over to it. They were doing it all the time. That's why when you come to church, you will always hear us say at Reliance Church, open your Bibles to. You're not going to get a bunch of philosophy about what I think or what Pastor Ted thinks or anyone else who fills this pulpit. You're going to get a bunch of Scripture because it's our job to align ourselves with the Bible. It's our job to cause ourselves to take in God's Word. And so this is point number one. We have to be taking in God's word continually, perpetually, steadfastly. This is where we have to align ourselves. Number two. Actually, before we move on to number two, undertaking God's word in, this means that we actually read it with an eye to see where your actions, your attitudes, and your desires don't line up. To see where you don't line up with these things. This is not just printed words. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. Don't, don't fall into the temptation of worshiping the, the, the ink and the, the black and the white and the red. It's not who we're worshiping. It's the God of the Bible. And so it's a relationship that we're in for. Not just the printed words. Number one, take God's word in. Number two, let godly people in. Not only just taking God's word in, but two, Letting godly people in. 
Notice it says there as we continue on, they continued steadfastly, not only in the apostles' doctrine, but also in fellowship. You have to have people in your life who have the opportunity to speak into your life. Do you have fellowship? Do you have godly people in your life? Do you have those people who are in your, in your life who can say to you, man, you got some issues, and let me tell you about them. You got some things that are going on. You got some, some areas that I need to, to lay out for you. Um, you, may, you may not have friends like this. Uh, you may actually have to ask people to be this for you and open yourself up and say, will you look at my life and, and meticulously go through it and show me where I'm not lining up with God? Have you, have you ever had a conversation like that with somebody where you're like, hey, um, you got a lot of stuff going on that's wrong with you and uh, I got a list. Um, so get a pen and paper because it's going to take a while. It's not a fun conversation to have, right? Like no one... If you look forward to having those conversations, you got a problem. you got an issue, okay? You want to be the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't need you to do his job. Um, that's not a fun conversation to have. That's not something that you look forward to and that you want to do. This is difficult. And so sometimes because we, in our pride and our arrogance, say, I've got everything under control. I don't need any of you. I don't need you to, to look into my life. I don't need you to tell me what's wrong with me. I got it. I got it taken care of. That's foolish. It's a foolish attitude to have. You need Godly people in your life. They call them blind spots for a reason. You can't see them. You can't see them. You need other people who have a fresh set of eyes to look at your life and say, listen, here's where you're not lining up. And it may take you going to some people who you know are godly and opening your life up to them and being vulnerable with them enough to say, please help me to honor God. You need to have people in in your life who prefer obedience to God over social acceptance that can speak into your life. They prefer obedience to God over social acceptance. And when they do, when they tell you what's going on, don't make excuses. Don't tell them all the reasons why it's okay or why you have a reason that that you could do this, that, or the other thing. Instead, listen and take it. Not only do we need to be taking God's word in, not only do we need to be letting godly people in, but number three, we need to be bringing God's spirit in. Acts 2.42, continued steadfastly, in the apostles' doctrine, in, the, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Here we see at the end there that the breaking of bread and prayers, I'm going to lump into one idea. The breaking of bread contextually here is talking about the idea of communion. This is more about your relationship with God than anything else. It's that you have relationship, communion with God. And that in this relationship, you're pursuing him, you're giving him open access. And in prayers, you're opening yourself up to God saying, Lord, have your way in me. You take your ideas to God in prayer, asking him what he thinks, and you don't do it on your own. That you submit yourself to him. You seek his desires above your own, and you're willing to yield. This is how we are not conformed into this power of the enemy. David's heart should have been broken back in in, uh, 1 Samuel 29. David's heart should have been broken when we see in verse 3 that David was... um, David was spoken of so, so kindly by King Achish. It should have broken his heart. It should have turned his stomach. Notice what it says in verse 3. Then the, the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. Achish has said uh, of David that essentially he has him in his pocket. And both Achish and David know it. They know it, that David's in his pocket. Achish says essentially in verse 3 that David's been with me for a long time. 
I don't see anything wrong with him. When, when ungodly pagan people say that about you, that's, that's an indication that something's wrong. When they say, yeah, nothing's wrong with you at all. You're just, you're spot on. Dude, like you got issues. If, if godless people think that everything's great in your life. He's been with me for a long time. I don't see anything wrong with him. And he's defected to me. Essentially what he's saying in that is he's no longer a Hebrew. I know he may look like a Hebrew, but he's not. He's actually mine. This is, this is very similar to like an ungodly friend or co-worker convincing other people that you're really not a Christian because they've seen you act just like them, that you've been pagan, that you've been godless, that, that you're really not a Christian. Look at who they are. Look at what they do. What they say may, may, may come across like they're a Christian. They may wear a Christian t-shirt and have a Christian haircut if there is such a thing, but they actually are not a Christian. Look at what they do. Look at it. That's essentially what's going on here. This should have turned David's stomach to hear, and yet it doesn't. What is, what is excellent to hear from the honorable is resu- revolting to hear from the heathen. What is excellent to hear from the honorable is revolting to hear from the heathen. Desiring favorable affections of the heathen will keep you from who you really are and will keep you from honoring God. You see, what proves godliness from one is godlessness from another. We have to be careful to know who it is that we're pursuing. Uh, I remember when I committed my heart to the Lord, when I got saved, I was, I was 17 years old. Um, and, uh, you know, as a high schooler, uh, the, the number one thing on the top of my list was attaining to cool. Like that, that, we don't really grow out of that. I've noticed that there's a lot of adults pursuing the same thing. But um, it, you know, in high school, you know, you're you're trying to pursue cool, right? And for me, because I'm a redhead, I'm a ginger. Um, I wasn't even like trying to pursue cool. I was just trying to go under the radar, right? Um, to, today, the way that this works, it, it's mind blowing to me. I heard of a girl who actually wanted to date a kid because he's a redhead, because he's a ginger. I'm like what the heck, man? When I was in high school, I got beat up for being a ginger. I didn't get dates for it. Like, this is insane. Uh, I'm just in the wrong generation, man, you know? And so, uh, man, that kid has no idea how, how much the chips were stacked against him. And now he's got everything set in his pocket. Well, I'm in, I'm in high school. And so I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm doing my level best to just fly under the radar. And then I feel the spirit of God tugging on me, pulling me into salvation. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I've already got enough going against me. I'm not going to be like one of those people. I'm not going to be like one of those crazies because all the Christians that I knew, they were, they were either uh, those people who were superficial or they were super dorky. And I'm like, man, I don't want to be like that. Oh, man, so this is the struggle that's going into my heart. Because I desired, I wanted the favorable affections of the heathen. And because of that, it kept me from God. It kept me from obedience. And it wasn't until God broke through all of that, and just like we were seeing, that I was able to pour contempt on all my pride, that I'm not going to pursue myself. I'm not going to hold myself up. I'm not going to try to make myself something. Instead, I'm going to allow myself to die, pouring contempt on my pride. Then I found freedom. Then I didn't care. Then it didn't matter what they thought because I had salvation. I had God. And everything changed in my life. I didn't need anything else stacked against me in my pursuit of this school, but I remember thinking, I'm just not going to be one of those nerd Christians. Man, I had no idea what I was talking about. 
So these other four princes of the Philistines, they question David's true allegiance. And they rightly observe that David could very easily betray them in their vulnerability of being uh, distracted in the middle of war. And they knew who David really was. That he was a Hebrew. Even if David didn't know, even if he was, he was deluded, even if he was blinded, even if he forgot about his identity, even though he thought he was a Philistine, he really wasn't. He really was a Hebrew. He really was. And, the, and, and these, these princes, these Philistine kings, knew that in the heat of battle, when it's all going down, David could very easily come to himself and realize, what am I doing? The people I am supposed to be protecting and fighting for, I'm, I'm slaughtering and I'm killing. And, and now, here I am on the wrong side, and he could come to himself in the middle of the war, and then he would become an even greater adversary for the Philistines. And so they tell, they tell Achish, nope, we're not doing it. You send him home. We're not going to let him fight with us. They quote the very song the Israeli women uh, sang from chapter 18. Notice verse 5, it says, they, they say, isn't this, isn't this David of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Do you know how David got this reputation? Do you know how this song was written about him, that, the way that it took place? In chapter 18, we see that it was written after David slaughtered Philistines. That's what he was known for. That's who he was. That's who God had called him to be. This was David's true identity. Not the defector to the Philistines, but the destroyer of the Philistines. This is who David was called to be. And so not only do we see David's strange alliance, we see David's questionable allegiance, but now we see it all come together in verses 6 through 11 with David's dishonor being alleviated. Let's look in verses 6 through 11, real quickly as we close. It said, Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out, and you're coming in with me, and in the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Notice what David says. It's It's crazy. I don't have time to really talk about all this, what David's going to say, but notice it. So David said to Achish, but what have I done? And to, and to this day, what have you found in, in your servant as long as I've been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Then Achish answered, And said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us into this battle. Now therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And so we see that David gets up the next morning. He goes back to the land of the Philistines. And uh, the Philistine uh, pursues into Israel. And they, they begin the attack. Christianity is not a supernatural, I'm sorry, Christianity is a supernatural faith. And the Bible is a supernatural book written supernaturally about supernatural things. You picking up what I'm laying down? It's not natural, right? Uh, it's just, it's not natural. It's above, it's supernatural. This is what Christianity is. This is who our God is. This is what the Bible is. And when we cannot seek a natural explanation for the supernatural, we cannot do that. 
when we try to explain the supernatural naturally, what ends up happening is we dilute it to being something that it's not. We, 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 we try to explain it away, and God, by very definition, transcends all of our natural limitations. It's who he is. We can't explain him naturally. Our feeble attempts to explain by temporal means and finite understanding the eternal expanse of God's glory, wisdom, might, and ability rings hollow. It rings empty. There's nothing to it. The lords of the Philistines didn't like David, and they were set against him. And this is not a natural thing that's taking place. This is supernatural. Because David had no idea what this this battle was about to bring. David could not have known. There was no way for him to know that this battle was going to bring the death of Saul. If you continue reading the next, cha- the next couple chapters, in ver- chapter 31, Saul dies. Saul dies in this exact battle. And if David was found in that battle, then he would be forever deemed an enemy of, of Israel. The very thing that God was using to cause David to ascend to the throne, David was trying in his own might, his own power, his own strength, his own way, And it was going to destroy it all. He was going to throw away his calling. He was going to throw away his anointing because he thought he knew better, because he had his own way, and he's fighting for it. He's pursuing it. If David enters this battle, he openly makes himself an enemy of the very people he's called to serve as king. God called and anointed David to lead and care for his people, not to defect from them and attack them. He has lost himself in the pursuit to preserve himself. And I wonder if some of, some of us have found ourselves in that same place. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Jesus speaks in a paradox, something that's not understandable, something that's supernatural, something that far exceeds what we can understand or really put together. He says, if you give up your life, that's when you find it. But if you try to keep it, you'll lose it. This is what we see David doing. This trial has been pushing so hard upon David that he's literally about to throw away everything. He's about to throw away his calling. He's about to throw away his anointing. This isn't simply some some guy suspecting David to be a double agent. It's a supernatural divine intervention whereby God will not allow David to carry out his sinful desires. God's intervention is providentially what causes David's ascension to the throne to be possible. Because God intervened, because God hardened their hearts, because God caused these pagan Philistines to say, we won't let David go with us, this is the very thing that causes David's ascension to the throne to actually take place to be possible. We must be careful not to despise God's hand moving in our lives. This this may be the very thing that God is using to save you from ruining a blessing. God's hand moving in your life and taking things away from you or making things that you want fall apart. He may be setting the stage to make things happen that you had no possible way of seeing. Instead of asking the question, what's best for me? Ask what most honors God. Instead of asking the question, what's best for me, ask the question, what most honors God? Because this will always be what's best for you. Always. Even if you don't understand it, even if you can't see it, even if it doesn't make sense, and even if it goes against your feelings. It's always what's right and what's best. And so God steps in to save David from his stupidity because God's a rescuer. He's a redeemer. This is what he does. Even in your self-centered, foolish pride, 
God will let you, uh, God will not let this lead you to, to complete ruin because Jesus will still step in and rescue you. God, God could have justly let David suffer the consequence of his folly, and yet he does not because God provides a way of escape for David. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 14 says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. God's a rescuer. He's a redeemer. He's someone who will not let you be overtaken by your folly, overtaken by your depravity, overtaken by your sin, overtaken by your selfishness. He steps in to change it all. It's just up to us to be willing to yield ourselves to him. God could rightly stand afar off from mankind, deeming him as a filthy and rotten thing, condemned to the folly he deserves. And yet, he himself interrupts your depravity by inserting himself into the middle of your filth. While retaining his perfection and his justice, he alone has the power to make you clean. He's willing to stoop down into your filth and to pull you out of it. This is where 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus, who knew no sin, he's perfect, he's righteous, he's clean, he's just, he takes from you your sin, he pulls from you your depravity, he puts it upon himself, and he dies on the cross in your place, spilling his blood for your sin. Make no mistake about it, that little white lie that you tell costs Jesus his life. His blood was spilled over it and every other horrible thing that we can think of. And in turn, he removes our depravity and he gives to us his perfection. Not because we deserve it. Because he's good. Because he's holy. Because he's kind. Because he's loving. Perhaps you find yourself in a similar place as David today. He knew where he belonged, but he tried to live in both worlds. And as a result, David ended up having place in neither of them. He couldn't live with his people because he left and he abandoned them. He couldn't live with the Philistines. They pushed him away. They said, you're out. Maybe you find yourself in a similar place today. Most tragic of all is that we see the way that this chapter closes, that David, in verse 11 goes back to the Philistine territory. The Philistine rejection sends him back into Philistine territory. He should have gone to Israel. He should have gone back to where he belongs, but he didn't. What will it take to get you to abandon your own way and submit your heart to Jesus? What will it take? What will God have to do? What will he have to pull apart? My pleading with you and my hope for you is that today you will choose to say, I'm no longer Lord of my life. He is. Not just my Savior, the one who paid for my sin, but my Lord, my King, my God, the one who leads me, the one who has control over me. I belong to myself no longer. I submit my life to him. And maybe in hearing this part of David's story, it makes you realize that you've been on the wrong side, that you've never been a part of God's people. Maybe you've been good at religion, maybe maybe you've been good at going through the motions, but in hearing this, in hearing this narrative of of David's life, you see, I've never been a part of God's kingdom. I've never been a part of God's people. Today is the day. Give your life to Jesus. 